As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. To save every second here and every minute right now at these meetings of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, an annual visit with David Malpass, outgoing president of the World Bank. And instead of talking World Bank affairs, aid to the world and the struggles of the war in Ukraine, we will hearken back to Mr. Malpass's moment of 07 and 08. More than anyone in this building and set of buildings, he lived front and center at Bear Stearns previous financial collapse. David, thank you so much for being with us. I'm not going to ask you an easy question like, does it allude back to 08 right now? But the stresses that you see right now in American banking, in the huge tensions between China and the United States, does it lead to that word suddenly, where suddenly things can change as they did in 08? Hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. Um, so the, there were big there was a maturity mismatch going on then, too. And it uh, may be from the same causes. Remember, in the in the 2000s, uh, interest rates were being raised very slowly. And so that built up a giant maturity mm-hmm. mismatch, uh, which uh, uh, some companies were funding with repos funding treasuries. So in uh, treasury bonds. And so in that way, it harkens to now uh, it, we have uh, in the U.S. banking system, some uh, banks are funding b- treasury bonds with deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a big difference now is the biggest dura- duration mismatch is the Federal Reserve itself. It funds with oh, uses overnight uh, borrowing to fund a giant bond portfolio, some nine trillion dollars. The European Central Bank eight trillion dollars. And I, th- I think the dominant feature now is the asset allocation that came out of that. If you have giant buyers of long maturity, of of duration. In in effect, the central banks were buying giant duration. And so what that meant is it distorted all world markets, and we're now in the workout phase. There'll have to be a normalization of interest rates. It means pressure on asset prices for a long period of time. That's what's showing up in the meetings here. The the expectation that there'll be weak growth for a while puts pressure on people in developing countries uh, throughout the world, and that pressure is getting intense. Frame the distinction between the World Bank weak growth call and that of your colleagues at the International Monetary Fund. Both of you, to editorialize, have been grim. What's the Malpassian level of grim in your forecast? Well, 
ours are, ours are a little weaker than the than the uh, IMFs, but remember they often do one in purchasing power parity. So if you adjust for that, there's not that much difference. Uh, we use market-based exchange rates, and yeah. so we, ours is two, and theirs I think would work out to two point four. So they're both mm-hmm. weak weak forecasts for two thousand twenty-three, uh, and. That's showing up in the U.S. You saw the Federal Reserve saying maybe in the U.S. a recession, mild recession in the second right. half. Right. And what's great about this is Melpass uses a slide rule from Colorado College. Uh, oh, very cool. Uh, 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 so this is growth. Let's talk about debt, if we can. Uh-huh. This is something you've been really outspoken about, mm-hmm. David, over the last few years. China, the world's biggest creditor to poor nations. I understand there's been some conversations this week. What's their position now, if we could start there? And then if you could tell me whether you're satisfied with it. Uh, the the debt has grown up over the years. The con, con, the uh, the composition of the debt is different from uh, in the old days. That used to be U.S. banks that were lending to foreign countries. Now we have China uh, and Euro, the euro bond market lending to developing countries, sovereign debt. So there was extensive talk yesterday. I co-chaired with Kristalina the, the debt roundtable. China came at the level of the PBOC governor and also the minister. Ministry of Finance of China, uh, and so they participate in the discussion. And there was there were some agreements. Uh, there was agreements that there needed to be more timeliness of the uh, launching into a restructuring process. That there needed to be da- data sharing. China has asked from the beginning, can't we get the data earlier? That hasn't been the tradition, but that's going to be. And there's a there's a paper to do that. Also, a working group, which is important on the technicalities of uh, burden. Burden sharing. How how do you have equal burden sharing among creditors so that they all participate in the restructuring process of the debt? This is really important to the people in developing countries because their governments are paying these large, high, not low interest rate, kind of market rate or above market rate uh, debt. And it means it's draining the countries of what they need for nutrition, for health, uh, for education, for climate adaptation. Are you satisfied with what China's committed to or do you need to see more? We need to see this week, and it was mentioned last night. Yesterday there were big meetings, so uh, we had the the uh, G20 meeting, the G7 uh, meeting of finance ministers, the development committee, the governors of the World Bank met and expressed st- strong support for the World Bank leadership. Uh, there, there were, uh, and there was discussion at the <clears throat> G20 even late last night of the specific countries that needed to get action on debt relief. Zambia was here. I had a panel earlier this week with the Zambian finance minister, the Ethiopian finance minister. They're burdened by high levels of debt. So the the proof is in the pudding. The the details of is Zambia going to get an MOU? We'd like to see one this week. China needs to be willing to sign off on the structure of the restructuring. One big question has been transparency and a lack of it and a lack of understanding of just how much debt China has extended to a lot of developing nations. Do you walk away from the meetings yesterday with a greater sense of how much debt they currently have tied to the developing world? we know quite a bit about it, but not not the full extent. And uh, there were calls yesterday, and there's specific discussion of this, that uh, some people say swap lines by China's central bank should be left out of the restructuring. Uh, some say it should be included 
in the restructuring. There was uh, talk about the the uh, what to do in with arrears. So as these uh, restructurings drag on, the uh, the interest on the interest uh, goes up and up. So. Can you agree in advance on how to handle that? And so it gets straight into the details. There was a there was a uh, uh, proposal made uh, that uh, it well the proposals across the board on how to handle this. So I think there's lots more work to be done, but at least there's a technical or a workshop that's going to be set up to to bring people up to speed on how you calculate net present value reduction within a debt restructuring. Would you identify this? and everything we've just discussed over the last few minutes as these number one issue that you're handing over to your successor at the World Bank? Well, certainly debt transparency is uh, is a giant issue. There was there was a call yesterday for the debtor countries to release the contracts that have non-disclosure clauses. So that's a specific thing that will be that will uh, outlast me, uh, and it's not going to get resolved this week. But I hope it does. You know, the 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 uh, China's written into the contracts non-disclosure clauses. That was specifically discussed. So as we look. Toward the future, I think what I'm handing over to my successor is a World Bank that's in really good shape. Uh, that was that was a main theme from ye- from yesterday's meetings, but also in a developing world that's under this giant pressure uh, from too much debt, but also not enough growth coming out of the advanced economies. Well, this won't be the end of our conversations. You know that. It's great to catch up, David. As always, David Malpass. There. Nice to see you. The president, Tom of the World Bank. Right now, an annual visit as we do at these spring meetings with Gita Gopinath, first deputy managing director at the International Monetary Fund. And what she has done critically in the last 90 days is drive forward the discussion of crisis and monetary policy and how we're going to extract ourselves from this mess. Dr. Gopinath, thank you so much for joining uh, this morning. You mentioned, buried in your wonderful essay, this scary idea that inflation becomes unanchored. Is inflation unanchored at this point? No, not at this point. I think if you look at the data, it's squarely anchored in the U.S. and in Europe and several other countries. That is not a concern right now. The concern right now off of the five-year forecast, it's your fault. We all know that. But the IMF five-year forecast that we have is 3% or even lower. The World Bank even set a little bit lower means a disinflation. It means a lower rate regime. If we have an, an unanchored or an anchored disinflation, does that lead to financial stability within your forecast? If inflation expectations de-anchor, there are multiple problems associated with that. Firstly, interest rates go up. Policy rates have to rise much faster to bring inflation down. And that can generate much greater financial stress than we have seen, with consequences not just for the country where the tightening is happening, but if you're a large economy, it would spill over mm-hmm. to the rest of the world. So that could be very consequential. And it's one of the downside scenarios we have in our world economic outlook, which is if interest rates have to go up much faster and you have much more tightening, you could end up with global growth going as low as, say, 1%, which is, would be very bad. So what is the nominal GDP separation of the IMF five-year forecast? Is it for a dropping disinflation, a lower inflation, and with it lower real GDP, bringing us down to a truly subdued nominal GDP? 
No, we have, uh, our expectation is that inflation will be conquered in, over time. It's not going to happen immediately. But if you go into 2024, you're going to see inflation around the world getting much closer to central bank targets. Real growth is going to slow also because we don't have any Chinas anymore that are growing at very high rates. So for the global economy as a whole, we don't have very large engines of growth. So that's generating the weakness in real growth, also because we have aging demographics. So unless we can find a way to raise productivity, you know, we are going to struggle with low growth. How controversial has your call been that inflation is going to get back down to where it was, close to pre-pandemic even, by 2024? You know, if you look at forecasts and if you look at market expectations in the U.S., you see an even more rapid fall in inflation that's expected. So we are actually on the side of being a little more cautious about how long it's going to take to bring inflation down. But we think the policies will work. There's been some very substantial increase in interest rates. We are seeing now that show up in terms of high-frequency data, the slowing of the economy, and we think that will bring down inflation. But it will take time. Do you think that the balance of risk has shifted since what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank and with some of the other banking institutions and the huge drop-off in lending that we've seen peripherally in initial data, that the balance of risks has shifted to perhaps have monetary officials be a little less aggressive when it comes to rate hikes and to err on the side of pausing or even cutting? As always, central banks need to take into account how economic conditions look. And with the financial stress, you've had a tightening in financial conditions. Bank lending standards have tightened. Smaller banks' credit has weakened. And that will slow the economy down to some extent, which is why central banks may have to do less. But again, I think we're still waiting for more data to show up to know exactly how much of of an effect that's had. Gita, there's a bit of tension between what the IMF has communicated this week and what politicians have responded with. Chancellor Hunt told us yesterday that he disagrees with your forecast. He's entitled to disagree with it. I spoke and we spoke to Tobias Adrian literally in the last hour, and he said he sees evidence of lending, bank lending contracting in America. Secretary Yellen says she doesn't see evidence of that. How do you explain the daylight between what your institution is saying and what politicians are saying back? So firstly, I think if you look at the numbers, we're not that far apart, right? So for instance, in the case of the UK, I think what uh, Jeremy Hunter would recognize is that we've actually had a substantial upgrade for UK for this year. It's just that we haven't gone as high as maybe some of the other forecasts. But we've actually seen things turn out better than expected in the UK. In the case of credit conditions, again, I think the difference is that Tobias was pointing to all of credit supply, not just from the large banks. And so you see that in the smaller banks, you see certainly credit supply slowing. But if you look at the large banks, indeed, you know, credit is holding up. So you don't believe the Treasury Secretary is misleading us when she says things like she doesn't see evidence of bank lending contracting? I think that's a, the description that, especially if you look at large banks, you're seeing credit holding up is an accurate uh, representation, again, of the data at this point. I, I look at where we are, and I wonder of the textbooks and the theory that's out there. It seems like everybody's post-pandemic supply-driven dynamics making it up as they go. And the day-to-day Gopinath grind of putting together the blue book, the world economic outlook, how much are you relying on a traditional economics versus going it's a whole new world after all? 
Well, I think there are parts that are new and then there are parts that are old and stay the same. So we're using a combination of models, but also going beyond. Is our start a valid model right now? You and I are going to be with Olivier Blanchard tomorrow. He's trumpeting the dynamics of our start. Is it useful? Is there an efficacy traditional to traditional John Williams economics? I think it's a very useful input in thinking about how to fashion monetary policy and also fiscal policy. I think, it, again, it's an input. You cannot be, that cannot be the only thing one is focused on. I think that's what the pandemic and the war has taught us. A lot of people say that this group of meetings is somewhat different in nature than previous ones, just because we feel like we're on the precipice of some sort of turning point, either back to what we came from or something new. How would you characterize it in terms of how these meetings are different? I think this meeting is different to the extent that I think we are in this period where after all the monetary policy tightening that's happened, we are seeing the effect of it because we know all this tightening works with a lag. So I think this is the lag and we're seeing it play out now. There are concerns about how this could play out. You know, as of now, financial policy tools have worked well in being able to calm markets, but there are risks that are out there. The second aspect is we are looking at a period where growth in the world is not going to go back to the 3.8% it used to be, but more 3%. And lastly, we have many vulnerable economies around the world with very high levels of debt and could be in, in debt distress. So, you know, I think we have to all, first of all, recognize that the world economy did better than expected last year. It showed much stronger resilience. We still have tight labor markets. Consumption spending is still holding up. But that said, the Balance of risks are squarely to the downside. That last point is so important. Gita Gopinath of the IMF. Gita, thank you. As always, thank it's you. good to catch up and good to see you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Paolo Gentiloni joins us now, the EU Commissioner for Economy and Financial Affairs. <sighs> Commissioner, good morning. Good morning. We won't talk about Juve, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. I want to talk about something much more <laughs> difficult. Let's start with this question. Does Europe have a coherent approach to China? And if you do, what is it? Well, I think we do have. This is the obvious uh, answer. Uh, it is uh, evolved, this attitude, since uh, three, four years. Uh, our attitude until three, four years ago was the attitude of, well, we have... Uh, important trade relations and whatever they are, we will uh, strengthen these trade relations. Um, now I think we are very clearly um, 
on the perspective to rebalance these trade relations, uh, to also uh, leave behind a certain ingenuity that we had in hoping that these trade relations in themselves uh, would uh, be um, in, a, in an equal treatment, in a level playing field, which was not completely the case. So we are still uh, cooperating economically, but we have also a, a geopolitical uh, perspective, which is, of course, uh, quite different from uh, China, and it is uh, the perspective of our partners and uh, U.S. and the Western alliance. I wonder alliance. If, if your view, Commissioner, is different to the view of the French president. I'll share some of his language with Politico over the weekend. He said, the great risk that Europe faces is that it gets caught up in crises that are not ours. He's talking about China and Taiwan and potentially just following whatever the United States does. Do you agree with that sentiment? No, I agree on the fact that we should avoid this kind of crisis. But, of course, if these crises occur, we know which side we are in. I look at Italy, and I have to bring this up, and in American football, this would be called an audible. I'm going to change gears here on what's unspoken. The stunning statistics, and you as former prime minister of Italy can speak to this, of a birth rate in Italy post-pandemic that takes you back to 1861. The demographic driving forces that we face at these meetings are enormous. Are we depeopling the Western world? I think we run a risk. Uh, I think this risk is particularly clear in Europe, especially uh, in Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. but indeed also in uh, my country and uh, other European countries. Uh, how do we um, uh, face this challenge? Well, I think we should uh, continuously look to our perspective in a, uh, not only in a horizontal way. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, Europe and its big Eastern neighbor, uh, Europe and Russia. Right, right. We need a, a vertical way, knowing that Europe, the Mediterranean, uh, the Arab world, Africa, this block will have, in 2050, 2.5 billion people. And we need cooperation, legal migration. This is, of course, joined with internal policies that are increasing right. demography. This is the solution. Well, the, the also to the demographic challenge. The European experiment forward has to be, and I percolating out there is an optimism about a better nominal GDP for Europe. Do we still have eurosclerosis, or should I say the risks of eurosclerosis, or have you broken free of that, as John mentions, with a new relationship with China, among others? Well, I think that, well, we, we love uh, living in Europe. Uh, I think it's, um, we are proud of our values, our culture, but we should not um, think ourselves, and if possible the world, to Europe as, well, what a beautiful place with such a good, good values, a wonderful culture, etc. Because Europe is also 
the place where innovation happens. Are you seeing a new nominal GDP in Europe? Have you broken free from the Eurosclerosis theme of decades? I think there is a chance to do so. Why there is this chance? Because um, I think for the first time, uh, the Europe, I mean, in this case, the European Union, is uh, thinking itself as an actor on the global uh, race to innovation, to clean technology, what in our Brussels language we call uh, strategic autonomy is something completely new for Europe. Mm. Our idea of the European economy was until three, four years ago, the idea of a economic mm, single market based on competition and open trade, full stop. Now, the European Union with plans of strategic autonomy is a European Union uh, fighting for innovation. Just quickly here, how much is that new vision at odds with the vision that the United States has in terms of a cohesive trade relationship with China and a cohesive trade relationship across the Atlantic? Well, I think we should be recognizing the fact that we will have in the coming years a sort of uh, race to, to clean technology um, in the world. A race with the U.S.? A race among the, the, the economic global player. A race for subsidies? The, the problem is to avoid that this become a race for subsidies. And this, the risk is this to avoid is that this undermine the relation with our partners. I'm very optimistic from this point of view because with the Americans, with Canada, with other countries, with Japan, we cooperate very well. Everyone recognizes that Europe has the right and the duty to provide security to, to its own supply chains of the future. I think that this is clear for all our partners. So the problem is how we participate to this race for clean technology without transforming it in a subsidies war and in a tension among partners and without transforming this in a reduction of global trade. Difficult balance to find. But if we don't find this balance, if we don't have global trade for an economic bloc that, like the European Union, yeah. it's a big problem. Commissioner. Thank you. It's Thank you very you. much. Paolo Gentiloni so there, the EU Commissioner for Economy and Financial Affairs. Tobias Adrian is Director of Monetary and Capital Markets at the IMF. What that means, he's in charge of the Green Book and all around financial stability here. He has enjoyed a recent American banking crisis. You people put out PhD fancy spider charts which show the different factors that are of challenge right now. Which spider chart and which factor in that chart matters right now? Yeah, so uh, I think what we have seen in recent months is that uh, banking stocks uh, have sold off 
uh, quite a bit, in particular in the US and Europe, but the market more broadly has been fairly stable. Um, so financial conditions have tightened to some extent, but it's really in the banking sector mm -hmm. that we have seen most of, of, of the tightening, and that could have consequences down the line for macro activity. I want to go to your work at MIT with Olivier Blanchard. He's all the rage. He's my book of the summer with wonderful difference equations on R starred. Fold in the theory right now to the hardcore pragmatic realities of macroeconomics. Does theory matter right now? Does R starred matter? Absolutely. We published a chapter uh, just earlier this week that is looking at R star. And in our assessment, and that is very much aligned with what the market pricing is telling us as well, is that interest rates are going to come down in the medium term. Of course, at the moment they are elevated, central banks have to fight inflation and then have to keep monetary policy tight. But over time, we do expect uh, interest rates to come back down to our star, which we estimate to be similar to pre-COVID. Do you think we've seen evidence that this banking system can't handle interest rates at close to 5% at the Federal Reserve? Uh, there's certainly stress in the banks and in the non-banking system, right? We have seen turbulence in both banks and non-bank financial institutions. And uh, there's always a distribution of how much exposure there is to interest rate risk, to duration risk. And some of the weaker players have been under tremendous stress. Um, and there are certainly uh, possibilities that further stress could uh, be triggered at some point. Clearly there were some badly managed institutions and we won't talk about them individually, but one Fed official said earlier this week that he does not think that it was because the Federal Reserve went from zero to five in 12 months. Is that an assessment that you share? So I don't think it's the speed per se uh, that is at play here, but I do think that the rise in interest rates has been putting pressure on institutions. There are these unrealized losses, which are in the public domain and which have made headlines around the events uh, over the past month. Well, do you think, just to sort of put a bow on this, do you think that the stress shows that it is not worth it to necessarily mm -hmm. raise rates further from here and cause that sort of more systemic stress in order to more rapidly get inflation back down to where it was pre-pandemic? So the first order goal for central banks at the moment is to bring inflation back to target. I think there's no question about that. And uh, both the US policymakers and the Swiss policymakers have been very successful in deploying other tools to ensure financial stability. There were aggressive actions uh, in terms of lending and deposit insurance to contain any fallout. Uh, and that allows monetary policy to continue to tighten to fight inflation. Inflation is a big problem and inflation has to come back to target. We've talked a lot about trying to separate two things, <laughs> yeah. financial stability from uh, monetary policy fighting inflation. Eh, they're getting a little fuzzier, especially from the minutes where clearly you have Fed officials pulling back from some of the rate hikes. Do you think that a credit crunch is disinflationary? There's certainly going to be an impact from the higher cost of capital of banks on their bank lending behavior. We have numbers in the GFSR. We estimate that to be about 0.45% in the US and a similar magnitude in Europe. So there is going to be an impact in our assessment from bank lending on real output. And that, of course, is going to feed back into monetary policy decisions, absolutely. Okay, so basically, do you think that right now, developed markets should not raise rates further and that they should just 
tolerate inflation being higher for ha perhaps a bit longer with faith that it will get back in the IMF's view to where it was pre-pandemic? So uh, we don't have the definite answer yet. It depends on uh, releases around inflation. There could be upside surprises to inflation that may uh, need further tightening of monetary policy. So, you know, policy going forward is very much dependent on data, in particular on how core inflation evolves. Well, let's talk about the data that might influence how core inflation evolves. Have you seen evidence that credit is contracting, that bank lending is contracting in America? Oh, absolutely. We have seen uh, a couple of data releases that have shown a certain amount of tightening in uh, credit underwriting standards as well as in the overall level of credit. Can I be blunt then? What on earth was the Treasury Secretary talking about earlier this week? Uh, so um, I would distinguish a baseline and an adverse scenario. And I think uh, the Treasury Secretary was talking about the baseline. When you look at markets, you know, the market implied inflation is coming back to sure. target fairly quickly. You're being kind because I think she said she saw no evidence of lending contracting, and you've said we do. Yeah, absolutely. There is certainly uh, evidence in the data of some contraction in lending and some tightening of uh, lending standards. Lisa, what a situation. Some real daylight again between the IMF, and we're all looking at the same data, and the politicians, and the Treasury Secretary and the IMF is one example. Chancellor Hunt is another example of the same thing, although that's about projections and not realized information, but still. We dismiss that as politics, but uh, I would love your, your answer with that, Tobias. What the policy implications are of the politics of not reflecting the pain that is likely to uh, occur when you get the policy prescription that you think is necessary to bring down inflation. So absolutely, I think monetary policy is being tightened and that is partially transmitted through bank lending. That's the classic bank lending channel. And um, you know, to get inflation down, of course, uh, economic activity has to come down to some degree. We're out of time, but I've got one real important question. I'm going to bounce it off Robin Wigglesworth's wonderful tour de force on debt in China and restructuring today in EFT. Just simply, if China is reticent to join the West in restructuring debt, does that change your financial stability? So uh, many countries are in debt restructuring uh, negotiations. And there are many players that are important. You're mentioning uh, one of them. Uh, and for those countries, it is extremely first order to get the debt restructured. For the moment, uh, the countries that are impacted are smaller countries. So relative to global capital markets, I think uh, that uh, will not lead to broader contagion. Tobias, this was wonderful. So, Thanks for waking up early. I mean, this is like... Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Right now, this is a joy. As you well know, there were 142 books written on the crisis of 07, 08, 09, and singularly definitive was Fault Lines. As we face new fault lines now, the author was Raghun Rajan of the University of Chicago Booth School, and his uh, follow-on book, The Third Pillar, was my book of the summer uh, ages ago. The former head of the Indian Central Bank joins us this morning, and we could go for two hours, Raghu, and we don't have it, because I know I think you're heading for the airport. So let's get right to it right now. Olivier Blanchard is looking at dynamics of our start and growth. The developed world's looking at this. The emerging market world and their fragilities are looking at it right now. How close are we to an instability of where we need to be versus the growth rate we're going to we hope to see. Well, we have still a economy in the U.S. which is not landing. Right, it's it's chugging along. The first quarter looks pretty good. The problem is more with the medium term. What happens when all the stimulus plays through? What happens when the stimulus right. from the Inflation Reduction Act plays through? Do we slow down? And what you're seeing in many emerging markets is a lot of damage done by the pandemic which is also going to hold them back going forward in terms of consumption, for example. Mm -hmm. Lower middle class, deeply hurt during the pandemic, slowly recovering, but it's going to take time. And of course, we've got all these overheads, such as the uh, tariffs, the deglobalization, the conflicts, the attempt right. to... So uh, in terms of longer term growth, it doesn't look good. I think the IMF right. is exactly right. Longer term growth looks uh, mm -hmm. a lot worse. Of course, where our star settles after that, there are conflicting forces. The IMF says low, Larry Summers says high. My sense is low, that uh, yes, you may get an inflation premium tacked on to the real interest rate that right. is equilibrium, but uh, it's right. not going to go back to high levels. Uh, Raghu, Tim, Tim from Cupertino emails in. Thanks for watching this morning, Tim. And he says, China and India, you are the number one expert we have in the world on the dynamics of these two great nations versus a new America. Explain to us how you see 24 months out Washington, Beijing, and all of India. Well, I would hope that we don't go down the path we're on with, between Washington and Beijing. That's the key relationship in the world. That is fracturing. I hope they talk more. They're not. They should. Uh, that's, that's important for the rest of the world because if you have to choose sides, uh, countries will be in a very, very difficult position. Of course, there is hope that some country like India will take up the growth engine from China. That's not going to happen for a long time. India is one-fifth the size of the Chinese economy. Even if India grows at, you know, historic China-like growth rates, mm -hmm. which, is, which is still a ways away, uh, and it needs to do lo a lot to get there, India is not going to be a substitute for China. What is important is India do what it does really well. India could be a big exporter of services. You're seeing service exports in India go through the roof. And these are things, not just IT exports. These are new forms of services. For example, consulting services being produced from India. It's not just the back office of old. 
It's new you know, consultants mm-hmm. actually facing clients. It's lawyers facing clients. That's, I think, a mode for the future. That's going to help growth across the world. Bringing us here to the here and now, back in 2005, you're the head of the IMF Economics Department, and you warned about a banking crisis. Yeah. Larry Summers, at the time Treasury Secretary, called you a Luddite. Do you think that we are on the precipice of some sort of financial crisis or significant credit crunch that is underappreciated? I think we're not over yet. How bad it gets, we will have to see. I think this problem is more systemic. We, we sort of putting it on a few banks, right? These are the guys who splurged, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't do the right thing. The fact is, when you have quantitative easing of the kind we had in the pandemic, you know, the Federal Reserve expanding its balance sheet tremendously, what happens? Well, commercial banks also have to expand their balance sheet. They expand it by issuing uninsured demand deposits. Uninsured de- demand deposits went up by trillions of dollars during the pandemic, and they haven't come down. So the sources of fragility are there, right? You're bringing down reserves, but these guys still have a lot of demand deposits out there. Now, we've seen that, of course, where those deposits were invested also matters. If they were invested in long-term securities, you're seeing those losses permeate through the balance sheets of the banks. And there will be problems going forward. The question is, as you pointed out earlier, how does this play out in terms of the credit crunch? which is coming, are there substitutes? Does private credit, for example, pick up some of the slack from the banking system? That's the big unknown. But uh, accidents, I think we can't say we're over. Are credit crunches inherently disinflationary? They are. They are. I mean, uh, they're going to tighten. So you could argue supply side, demand side, right? But I think the net effect is disinflationary typically. So yes, it will do the Fed's job a little for it. But the Fed doesn't know if it's coming. The Fed doesn't know how much. And right now, you know, while the numbers look good, you're still looking at things like services inflation, which is still strong. So the Fed can't relax at this point on the inflationary front, even though, you know, from the credit front, it probably should be a little softer. You were really moved by your interview with Raghu's colleague, Luigi Zingales. Frame that with a professor from Booth School. Groupthink. The failure of the Federal Reserve on both monetary policy and on regulation. Do you think that institutions like the one we're in right now this morning, the Federal Reserve, which we talk about often, still suffers from groupthink? And if you do, how on earth are we going to address that? Look, I think the one thing that seems to be off the table in the discussions is the role monetary policy has played in creating financial fragility, right? We've sort of put that off the table. We don't talk (laughs) about it at all. And you have to believe that three crises in, uh, in two decades, it has to play, have played some role. And to put it off the table and say, look, it's the private sector, it's the financial sector doing its stuff. They, they've got bad incentives. Well, that's part of the problem. That's not the entire problem. Now we're saying supervisors are also part of the problem. But what about monetary policy? What about, for example, QE? Wasn't that part of what created the fragility that, in fact, we're seeing now? And, and that's why we need organizations like the IMF to start talking. They're very hesitant to complain about central banks of the industrial world because those guys have more economists than the IMF sometimes. I hear so, you. Unfortunately, we're out of time and I could talk about this all day, but it's the establishment of you still dominates the conversation. And I think that this institution that we're lucky enough to sit in this morning is 
is part of the problem on that front. It, it needs to make a bigger argument. Raghuram Rajan, always fantastic. Right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Raghu, thank you. Raghu Rajan of the University of Chicago, Booth School. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.